The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. Oops, oops, oops. <laughs> you are listening to the Burrows of Berea. Well, welcome back to the Burrows of Berea. I am Rick Welch, and behind the glass is Rocket Man Andy Bishop. <laughs> hey, it's just me and you, pal. Hey, that, these are some of my favorites. I know. We don't we don't get to do this very often where it's just me and you in the studio. But today is going to be a, a threesome. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, it's a special testimony episode, and I have with me in the studio Michael Hessler. Michael, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. Yeah, so to give you a little backstory, um, uh, the woman that takes care of my, I call her mom, but she was my best friend's mom. Uh, for years, it's it's her boyfriend, and we've I've got I've met him, and I've spent a couple of holidays with him, and I've listened to him talk, and I've I've heard just tiny little bits, and I heard that you had an interesting testimony, and I was real, I so I wanted to get you on the show, great, so that we could actually hear it. Yeah. Appreciate it, I appreciate it very much. Yeah, so glad you're here. So I always ask every guest the very first question I ask them is, can you tell me your earliest memory of when you heard the name Jesus? I would have to say I was maybe four or five years old. Wow. And, you know, back in the—my family wasn't particularly religious, but the name would come up, you know, mm-hmm. and didn't really—I didn't really have a context that I could fit it in, you know? Yeah. So—but you remember the name. I do. Yeah, I remember, like, one of my one of my earliest memories was actually— I saw him being crucified on the cross on a television show, and I was like, what are they doing to that, that criminal, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's like, and that's what's happening. I mean, it's a the criminal. punishment, You know, and it just, it changed my life. I didn't have a clue, you know. So that's why I'm always interested. What do people think, you know, like when they first hear the name Jesus and what does it mean? So you weren't from a religious family early on is what you mean? And then. Right. I wasn't. In fact, I was agnostic when this whole thing happened to me. Uh-huh. And uh, there was an indelible experience that happened on April 15th of 2014 that, that cleared the whole thing up for me. Well, let's get into that then. So what I want to do is, um, typically in a testimony, I try to not talk, <laughs> you know? Okay. And so what I want to do is just take it away. Let's let's hear about right. uh, what what's going on with you and, and your belief. I'll give you a little lead in and then go into what happened, the incident and the aftermath. Okay. So on April 15th, 2014 is the day I was educated about the fact that Christianity is a practice, not a belief. That was the day I was relieved of my burden of doubt by experiencing firsthand what it means to move from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. My preparation for that day of revelation began about seven years earlier, in 2007, when I experienced an onslaught of painful symptoms, which was soon diagnosed as a combination of lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Mm, Wow. Lupus is a merciless disease whereby a person's immune system starts destroying what we consider to be normal tissue. People with lupus get exposed to a language of pain most people spend their lifetimes trying to avoid. And disease activity for me was horrific. It brought easily blistering skin, extreme internal pain, rapidly degrading joints that quickly put me in a wheelchair. The primary medication used to control inflammation, which is prednisone, 
also caused very serious retina damage, so when I needed extreme pain relief, I paid for it with a fractional but permanent loss of eyesight. By late 2010, I'd entered into a period of intense suffering that would go on for three and a half years until a baptismal event brought respite. Unlike a disease like cancer, with lupus, you don't get an end date. You don't know if an element of suffering will go on for one hour, one month, or 20 years. So, as the pain became a constant companion, the practice of becoming real resilient in the face of that pain becomes normalcy. And when enduring suffering, a person needs to offset the pain with something. And functionally speaking, there are techniques that one learns that allows one to endure intense, indefinite-term suffering. Can I can I interrupt you right there? Mm-hmm. So earlier you said you had a respite through baptism. Yes. I'm assuming you're going to get back to that. I will. Okay, good. Yeah, I just <clears throat> want to make sure I, I just, catch that. My, my only touchstone for this is how much I dislike prednisone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's the yep. drug he was on to to help with the other pain. And yeah. Prednisone is a miserable. It <laughs> is. It's a miserable drug. It is. It it's is. like it's the it's the drug they use for everything, right? Like, yeah, it's a steroid it's a lot of, and, like skin it, uh, stuff, and you know, especially it's like, like a first line poison ivy. Yeah. They'll give you prednisone. That's where Z-packs I get because I'm bad with it. Yeah, yeah. Like poison ivy. Anyway, sorry. sorry I just like prednisone is miserable, and that's like the thing that's making his life slightly better. Right. So yeah. like that's <laughs> it was yeah. not a great jumping off point. <clears throat> no. But as my body broke down, it activated a range of senses that a person who does not suffer probably will never know about. And when I started having severe vision loss, instead of watching people's faces, I would start listening to the tones in their voices to understand what they're trying to communicate. You know, those are the kind of shifts that start. It starts happening place. naturally. Like, yes. Oh, okay. So you're just doing this. Yep. Okay. Can you turn that mic, push that mic down? Because you're like kind of like chinning down at the bar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you. It was during that time that I started assembling TLP, which is, stands for the Lupus Project, as an outlet to offset that pain. Now, during that time of suffering, I was given a vision. And when I talk about a vision, it goes far beyond anything a dream can convey. It was rich, but, you know, they're rare, but they're very rich in symbolism. And they've got a strong emotional component that dreams typically don't carry. And to me, they're as real as real life when they happen. And in this vision, I see a buffalo. It lay dying from a fight before it fell in its battle. It had gored its opponent so decisively that around its horns were hanging a number of chains and talismans its opponent had been wearing around its neck for protection. And my message from that vision was come and learn the difference between determination and resoluteness. Hmm. Now, these are extremely important words because whereas determination got me through the effects of suffering— it was resoluteness that enabled me to experience full-on the immersion of the Holy Spirit, and it became my standard of practice. So, by late 2012, my health had degraded to a point I had a chance between a nursing home and death on my own terms. I'd been to a lot of doctors. All treatments had failed. And so, by January of 2013, due to my experience of being briefly kept in a nursing home, I picked death on my own terms and started planning to move. And this is what I call the path of the living dead. By spring of 2013, I moved to White Cloud, Michigan, which is a rural area where I had really no deep family ties into a rundown house in the middle of a wilderness area. I was on an 80-acre parcel surrounded by 600 acres of federal land in the Manistee National Forest. While I was convinced I didn't have terribly long to live, I didn't realize this was just the beginning of a wilderness experience that would go on for eight years. In White Cloud, it was for me to get up and do something or die. 
I have a degree in electrical engineering and an MBA with focus in international business, marketing, and quality. And before I got sick, I was managing a $120 million business within a much larger corporation. <laughs> and I operated primarily in aerospace and defense markets, being responsible for contracts, pricing, justifying engineering investments, profitability, things like that. Traveled extensively and often internationally. And I had a number of skills that I didn't want to waste, but you know, I was pretty sick at the same time. Yeah, so here you are. You go off to this place. You're, you're going to die. Yep. And you've left this, obviously, this remarkable career, something you've worked really hard to get to. You've, and now you're alone. Yep. You're, you said which state? Michigan. Michigan. Is that a right to die state? You know that? Not really. No. Um, you can have um, medical directives there that may or may not be respected. Uh, you, the medical community there can overrule your, your medical directives. Oh, really? Which is not good. Hmm. Okay. Well, at least that's what I found out. So I was still in and out of my power wheelchair when I got to White Cloud, living mostly alone. I get visits from time to time, but I was living mostly alone. I'd get up and watch the sunrise, and I'm not sure if I'm going to live to see another one. And with that level of seriousness, I would ask myself what I didn't want to do that day, and then I'd go do what I didn't want to do first, one way or another. By this time, pain was ubiquitous. Whatever I did was going to hurt, so pain avoidance was no longer part of the equation. And I'd learned a long time ago to quit being concerned about my immediate predicament. I learned not to waste any emotional energy contemplating the ifs of negative events that could happen. And with chronic disease, no one really knows what the next few hours could possibly bring. So one's awareness naturally starts shifting into the now time. And I was ruthless on myself. If I didn't want to go walk through the creek in the middle of winter, I went and walked in the creek in the middle of winter. (laughs) If I didn't want to go fix the mower, go out and fix the mower. I did that until my avoidance mechanisms were nearly completely gone. It's funny how well you could train yourself if you're willing to put in the difficult work. I yes. mean, and that's isolated from your condition. Just that thing you were doing is difficult to force yourself to do on a normal day. Uh, you know, and, and it is it is amazing how you can train yourself if you're willing, if you can make yourself do things over and over again. Yeah. You know, just change into that person. This right. was an experience of stripping me down to my life energy, down to the core of what I was and, and working from that point where you're just saying, I'm, I'm going to go or I'm going to die, so get going. Hmm. So, since lupus was attacking me every way possible, I figured I'd make the most of my waking hours fighting back. In the woods, I was experimenting with various seeds, roots, and spores to see what would take. I worked to turn a three-and-a-half-acre sand pit into a functional garden, researched high-value shade plants, because lupus sunlight flares up my lupus, so working in the shade is an option for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas out in the sun is not. Then I worked on a patent for a work power wheelchair with a swappable chassis that would give a user a lot more uh, flexibility. And at the time, I was thinking having a home renovation and automation business that served disabled people would be a great business to start. But the flex chair idea was my first priority. So I was fighting for my life, but I wasn't sitting still. It was during the winter of 2013 to 14 in White Cloud Wall. Researching family history, I learned about relatives who were in the Salvation Army and had applied for passports to assist U.S. forces in France post-war, 1920 or so. And a lot of people don't know, but what the Salvation Army did in World War I would spur on the development of morale, welfare, and recreation facilities across various branches of the U.S. military. So in trying to understand their story, 
I was introduced to a Christian attitude I hadn't personally heard before. You know, how did this handful of resolute volunteers build a thriving committee in the community in the middle of a war zone out of their integrity and a donut? And in her book, The War Romance of the Salvation Army, Evangeline Booth would write, We went to the battlefields no strangers to suffering. The biting cold winds that swept the fields of Flanders were not the first to lash our faces. The sunless cellars with their moldy walls and water-seat floors, where our women sought refuge from shellfire through the hours of the night, contributed to no new or untried experience. She should also go on to talk about when the Empress of Ireland went down, which was a ferry, there was 130 Salvation Army officers on board, 109 officers were drowned, and not one body that was picked up had on a life preserver. The few survivors told how the Salvationists, finding there were not enough life preservers for all, took off their own belts and strapped them upon even strong young men, saying, I can die better than you can. Mm. Wow. So that was an attitude I could relate to, especially at that point in my life. You know, I was in the military during the, uh, yeah. You can take as much time as you need. All right, I need to take a little bit of a break. As much time as you need. Getting Anytime. Of myself. Is this is this emotional? Is Very that, much. Is that is that okay? Yeah. So, uh, all I'm going to say is that it's okay to be emotional here. You don't have to be. This isn't about being perfect. This is about being human. Gotcha. So you're you're free to be any way you want to be. I will do the best I can. You got it. All right. So that was an attitude I could relate to because I was in the military during the rise and implosion of the televangelists of the 80s. I think some of us remember that. And we uh, make fun of them quite yeah, a bit on here. Yep. During that time, Christianity seemed to me to be littered with people selling cheap theology for fast money, had more scandals and obvious successes, and unable to answer basic questions or put down the most virulent critics. I didn't condemn Christianity at this point, but it didn't make any logic. I didn't have an emotional attachment to it. Sure. So what I was doing in White Cloud, at least I thought at the time, was not practicing Christianity. It was fighting learned helplessness in the context of no mercy. And mm. it was under those conditions that I finished writing TLP. And the day I published TLP, I learned that what I'd really been doing was practicing spirit-led Christianity. And that spirit-led Christianity was the antidote to the learned helplessness that I thought I was fighting. <laughs> That's awesome. Flipped it. Yeah, that's awesome. So, retrospectively, I was at Isaiah 65, but I didn't know it at the time, and I wouldn't know it until 4.15 of 2014. And Isaiah 65 says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, Pursuing their own imagination, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. And... So, just like in Isaiah 65, during all my suffering, God was calling, but I couldn't hear him. Yeah. And simultaneously, I was being unwittingly offensive to um, God's spirit through my ignorance of what Christian practice actually did. <clears throat> and 
What I was about to find out is that what Christian frameworks really accomplish is to force an immersive experience with the Holy Spirit that takes place in the now time where sufferers live full-time. And what I was about to find out is an immersive experience in the Holy Spirit is supposed to happen while we're alive, not after we're dead and buried. And this is a tiny shift in interpretation, but it has massive implications. I was about to learn that Christian practice is not something that is supposed to continually shift the baptism of the Holy Spirit event into some indefinite future time. It's supposed to fix the dysfunction described in Isaiah 65, but I didn't know that yet. That's an excellent— You, you what's, got what's it. What's the function displayed in Isaiah 65? Yeah, I don't know if you heard it. He was just talking about it. I was being harangued by my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Very close. <clears throat> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> that describes an event. Isaiah 65 describes um, God calling to people— but people unable to hear what he's trying to say. Okay. And you look at the old, a lot of the Old Testament prophets, you see these kinds of inversions all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to tell you, I'm trying to tell you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. Right. And so it's the, what is this dynamic of I'm someone's trying to talk to you, but you can't hear him. You know, what's going on here? Yeah, and Andy, it's like whenever you, and I, I hope I don't steal the thunder, I don't think I will, but by the time Christ is on the scene, he begins to do things like make the dumb speak, mm-hmm. make the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk. He he was doing that for you rather than, hey, you're not walking. Hey, you're not hearing. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what I mean? Yeah. So Christ bridged the gap. Sorry. Yep. You're right. Okay. So I, I published TLP on 415 of 2014, which was an output of a Christianity that I was so easy to do. I didn't even realize that I was practicing it. TLP was originally written as a letter from a dying father to his sons and was mostly put together during the three-and-a-half-year period of suffering. I had no idea of the significance of that date in terms of the blood moon tetrad that had begun. I was aware Easter was approaching on 420, but that was about all that I knew at that point. So I took a couple—I did a couple things that morning. I published it. I went to bed. This, then I got hit with another vision. This one's so intense, it was indistinguishable from my normal awareness. And this time, I'm sitting in a chair by the table in the cabin where I was living, facing north, and I'm looking at the stuff on the wall, looking at stuff on the floor. Everything's there, you know, just like I would would be sitting at the table normally. And suddenly, on the hillside to my east, visible through the windows to my right, a bright white circle opened on the hillside, and it appeared about the size of a pie plate, and I didn't know what it was. It was just sitting there. I became aware of that presence, and I turned my attention to it, but not my body, and suddenly, that light being projected forward hit me, lifted me up off the chair. I mean, you could, I could feel the counteracting force of gravity, moved me around, and then it lifted me up, turned me in a particular orientation to the light beam, then threw me head over heels onto the floor into a classic Islamic prayer position. Hmm. And, <laughs> you know, from that, my eyes popped open. I get up, I go out to the table, I look at where that light beam came from, and I said, okay, I'm going to take the bait. So I got my wood clothes on, I grabbed an AR-15, and headed out the door. I was going to go find out what that was and where it came from. Now, to get where I was going, I had to cross about 300 yards of open ground. And heading toward the forest, I was applying all the suffering endurance techniques I'd learned. Staying in the now time, not allowing fear to influence my decisions— being 100% responsible for my attitude towards what I was experiencing, things like things of that nature. 
I was putting into practice everything I had learned while fighting learned helplessness under the conditions of no mercy. Well, moving forward towards the tree line, I was about 100 yards away from the house, and I could feel a slight opposing force coming at me, and it was getting stronger with each step forward. As I got closer, this force was causing this rotation of consciousness to take place with the message that my life was about to become my prayer, and the prayer was the TLP document that I published. And as I kept going forward, it got stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, at this point, I reached the forest, pushed past the tree line, got hit by the light beam again. This time, I'm fully awake, fully dressed, carrying an AR-15. Instinctively, I closed my eyes in response to the beam, and there was a deep blackness. Then as if somebody hit the blackness from behind, it all shattered away, just leaving this blinding white cross. And it was perfectly formed. It was thick, not thin, not bent or twisted in any way, formed with that bright, pure white light, just like that came shooting off the hillside. Everything around it, though, was pitch black. So the light outlined the cross very well, but it did not light anything that was around it or might have been around it. So at that point, I tried to speak. I tried to say, that's Jesus' symbol, but the word Jesus wouldn't come out of my mouth. I mean, I'm trying, I'm standing there going, you know, and nothing's happening. So, I wasn't able to speak that name in that presence because I didn't know him. So, I got an education. Next thing you know, you hear about going towards the light when you're dying on your hospital bed. Now, I'm going towards the light while standing up in the woods with a rifle on my shoulder. And this happened in the now time. So, I go through this passage into an infinite universe unfolding in front of me finally arriving in the presence of the, this massive fireball. So, it went from the cross to the fireball. All the emotionalism was there. Everything that, you know, had to be stripped away from a person to allow them to stand basically in the presence of the kingdom happened. I got to experience that firsthand. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. I don't mean to interrupt you right in the middle of this, but you have an analytical mind. You are you're you're educated, right? You, you explained yep. that to us. You've worked in aerospace. You've worked in you know, in, in a field that not many people can say they've worked in, right. you're having this experience. Are you thinking about, like, you know how our brains will split, right? Like, yep. we have moments, like, I, I described this the other day, where I'm having, like, 30,000 thoughts at once. Mm-hmm. Were you, like, arguing with yourself as you're experiencing this, or was it so overwhelming you were just experiencing it? It was so overwhelming, I just experienced it. Okay. Because, like, when I tried to speak, you know, that's right. Jesus' symbol, and then, uh, I couldn't say the word Jesus because I didn't know him in the presence of that light. Wow. So, it was time for me to just shut up and listen and learn about you know, it wasn't time for me to run my mouth. I had to just be quiet and listen to what I was about to be taught. I'm just so curious if this is like when you hear of the revelation of Jesus Christ to John when he's on the Isle of Patmos and he has this moment, he falls on his face. He can't speak. He doesn't want to speak. Right. He has that moment, you know, and the, yeah. and the former prophets in the Old Testament, when they have these visions too, like they're, they're like, uh, I don't even want to open my mouth. You know, they look at God and they don't even want to speak. And so, he, like, he puts the coal on the lips and it stuff. It does absolutely mm-hmm. sound like a uh, sort of a classic biblical uh, religious revelation, or not even biblical. I mean, it sounds like akin to a religious revelation that could happen, really. In it any sounds way. remarkably it, like it Constantine, too. I don't know if you've right. ever heard of Constantine's vision. It's very So, anyway, back to you. Well, I was um, standing in the presence, standing in the kingdom. The love of God was everywhere. It permeated everything. And their deception wasn't allowed, in part because the love of 
deception is betrayal. Mm-hmm. So, it, and the love of God was everywhere. You can't betray the love of God. And if you're going to be in his presence, deception isn't allowed. It was that simple. So, what that meant to me was all the pain and suffering I dealt with went to zero as deception went to zero, every bit of it. So, all the pain that I had just a few minutes ago when I was in the cabin and when I was walking through the, uh, the field to get up there, it hurt. When this happened, it didn't. It was the first time in seven years I hadn't felt pain. So, this demonstrated to me the direct link between the presence of deception and the experience of suffering. And also, though, were the gates to hell. That wasn't, that was very serious. You felt the emotions that draw people into that place. You see that it's a real outcome that people, that can happen to people. It wasn't a joke and it wasn't funny. But what the cross did for me at the moment I saw it was remove the deceptions of which I was unaware, which was a functional adjustment to remove the baggage that would have made me repulsive to the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And I had already unwittingly accepted my redemption via this process of persevering through suffering. That was what I was doing every day. It wasn't learned helplessness. It was Christianity that I was practicing, but I didn't know it. And I want to make sure I'm clear. I I want to be in the moment with you here. So, are, are, are all of these things that you're describing to me now things that you are streaming in consciousness and understanding in this very moment, or is this you looking back later to understand what happened to you? It never left. From the time it happened, I knew this was going to be part of my life for the rest of my life. Okay. There was So, I still have to deal with you know my life, my suffering, everything else. I still deal with that, but now I've got a context to put it all in. Okay. Whereas before, I did not have a context to put it in. Mm-hmm. Now, I do. Now, I know the purpose of the suffering, and I know what it's doing for me. It's really pushing this deception of which I'm unaware. That's what I let it do. Mm. And that brings me, that activates these emotions, you know, that are really deep, that helps a person accept the Holy Spirit into their life and start working with the Holy Spirit. Hmm. So, so, all the earth suffering was tied directly to our collectively unrenounced and regularly practiced freedom to lie. And all we do by exercising our freedom to lie is spreads pain and suffering and return for an illusion of control. So, at that moment, God's like, well, what do you want it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I don't. I don't. <laughs> Get right. rid of it. Get rid of it. You know? And um, so, it was a baptism of the Holy Spirit that confirmed 100% to me with zero doubt that we should take very certainly, very seriously Sayings such as, as surely as the Lord lives. So, that went on for a little while. Um, Spare you a lot of details. At some point, I finally said, I'm supposed to be dead to be here. And that's what started kicking me out. And I, suddenly everything goes black. And the next thing I know, I'm stumbling out of the woods. The rifle's falling off my shoulder. I can barely walk. I have no idea how long I was in the woods. Um, Don't know how long it took. But I, I stumbled back to the cabin. And then there were two more light beam events that happened while I was fully awake and cognizant of, you know, my surroundings. And these were um, not really, I'll probably not spend a lot of time on these because I don't have all the answers to them yet. <clears throat> so, um, but they did happen. So, now I know, though, through that experience, telepathy is real. God's got a way of communicating with you if you open yourself up and listen to it. And there are very real, very tangible emotions that come from the Holy Spirit 
that is God calling you, calling each person. Nothing that happened to me can't happen to somebody else. So what I do now, I try and tell people what the lessons of suffering are so the people who don't suffer can do it the easy way. The New Testament frameworks, if you use them rigidly, they will teach you everything suffering taught me without going through the pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been my purpose from that point forward. Yeah, it's like a handbook for it, it's what it's what monks do actually. You know, like they put themselves into that position to be able to get to this. It's an, it's a form of enlightenment. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Or at least that's what they're attempting. That's at, the right? attempt, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so through that whole death process was really just a rebirthing of who I was, and it was clear that there's a number of inversions had been normalized into modern Christianity that instead of prepares a person to have this experience while they're alive walking around on earth, it pushes it out, pushes it out until people are dead and buried. Mm -hmm. That's not the time to wait. That's not, that's not what it was all about. So, what I learned was, it's the, the witting and unwittingly, you know, when you cooperate with deception, even deceptions of which you're unaware, which me, I had a lot of them, um, you're the net effect of that is to push the Holy Spirit farther and farther and farther out of your life, and maybe to the point that you don't even have this experience until you're dead and buried, at which point for some people it would be too late. So, what I learned was pushing away the Holy Spirit amplifies chaos in people, which is why we have so many so-called mental health problems. I think people have been gaslighted into believing that they do not have um, within themselves the capacity to access the Holy Spirit full-time, when in reality, everyone does. I wish Teasy was in here. <laughs> She'd be all over this right now. She's, she totally agrees with what Mike's saying right now. Does she? She does, yeah. She'll use other words like chakras, and, you know, she talks about different religions as well, but what he's describing is, you know, having that Very connection to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she'd be all over it. So, you know, a person who practices deceptions that they are aware of becomes blinded to ones that they aren't aware of. So, it becomes kind of a lefty-loosey, righty-tighty way of approaching life. You know, you, you, you're going to get rid of them or you're not. So, you can either get rid of them and have these types of experiences or you can hang on to them and possibly never have one of these types of experiences, which is to the detriment, I think, of most people. So, um... That was that was the first day. This kept going, so that was started on four fifteen in twenty fourteen. That baptismal experience, you know. Um, next day, now it's a little different. Now the next day turned into an exorcism. Here I'm using the Holy Spirit, which I just learned where it's coming from, to start pushing out the gen multi generational things that are stored in everyone's DNA, yours, mine, everybody else. But instead of doing it for the cabin, for my sons, for, you know, a legacy or whatever. Now, it's, let's get rid of everything so you can bring a message to people. And I started doing that. <clears throat> it involved a lot of throwing up, a lot of burning things. It was extremely intense. Went on for a day. Sparked another vision that night of me sitting back in this north-facing chair, and there's violent pounding on the front door, just like someone's trying to break the door down. And there's this telepathic, you know, communication that I just learned existed. I just said, I dare you. And the pounding stopped, and then all the energy flowed away. <clears throat> that was day two. Day three 
was a day of healing. So now I've had the baptismal experience. I kind of went through an exorcism of getting rid of all this, you know, generations and generations of stuff and doubt that cemented it there. And this allowed the healing to start. And like it cemented everything for me as if I needed it. But um, early in that morning, I was standing outside and a white work van pulls up and a guy gets out, he's carrying this glowing Bible. <laughs> and so um, he said something to me I couldn't really understand. This so is I, not a vision? No, this is This I'm, is real reality. This is real life, yeah. Okay. And I said, well, brother, everything here is under control. And he kind of looked at me funny and he's like, okay, and he gets back in his van and he leaves. So, But he didn't leave the glow in the dark <laughs> no. Bible. That stinks. Yeah, I should have kept that. <laughs> yeah, there, that would be that would be an item, a bragable item. I wonder if item. he was a glow yeah. in the dark Bible salesman. I don't know, but it was, it was just- <laughs> You didn't give him enough time. You know, I was- give the sales a, spiel. This is a rural area. This is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I had one neighbor whose property touched my- property and there might have been one or two others but I didn't know this guy from anybody and why he would show up there is a, a mystery but he did and I, re- I was really glad that he did because this was dropped on me with no warning I didn't I had no clue this was going to happen and now I have to you know now you're dealing with it dealing with the emotionalism of it and everything so here comes the healing event I nicked my ear with a razor. It was small, but it was bleeding. So I laid down and I started channeling this Holy Spirit energy that I just found about into all these areas that were really um, hurting on me. I had pain on my right ear. So I'm using my hands to push that energy into into that painful area. And suddenly it ruptured. And now I got both ears bleeding. So I had to get more tissue laying back down. And I pushed it. I got a little headache and something going on in my you know, around my nose. So I start pushing on that too. Next thing I know, I got a nosebleed and it wasn't a little bit. I take Coumadin because I had a DVTPE. Blood thinner. Yep. And I tend to bleed a little bit more than other people, but this was like a a bloody torrent. Um, I had blood dripping all over the place. I went into the bathroom and I'm just letting that blood, I'm, I'm breathing it, I'm blowing blood out of my mouth. And as I'm bleeding, I got two unmistakable messages. First one about my ear bleeding was, this is so you can hear my words. And then out of, for the nose and mouth thing, it was, this is so you can breathe my spirit. Hmm. I'm hearing these things coming through. It wasn't an audible hallucination. It was kind of a vibratory telepathic event. And I'm sensing this. I'm going, oh, wow. You know, this is going to be part of my life from this point forward. So I was really happy. Happy to be bleeding out of every orifice. I was. I was absolutely happy because now all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, Just to clear that up. <laughs> by, by the time the um, healing was done, I had liver cysts were gone. Some internal pain under my rib cage was gone. Neuropathy in my hands was gone. The rate of decline of my eyesight was reduced. Um, I was out of my power wheelchair and learning how to use this newfound force in my life. That's amazing. Yeah. That is genuinely amazing. The swelling in my ankles started receding. And um, that was the day I was able to quit using my wheelchair, and I did. But still, obviously, lots of things still haven't been healed. So this whole thing, obviously, I'm really happy. There was people. There was a person there who didn't quite understand what was going on. Got concerned. Next thing you know, I medically kidnapped. That's a whole nother story that I won't bore you into. 
but it does get back. I mean, to medical it. kidnapping does not sound boring at all, but no, well, no it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, no. like, but like Wednesday. Sp- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the state has this term they call it hyper-religious. And I don't know if you knew this or not. You can be, you can have your constitutional, medical, and religious rights stripped from you if you're deemed to be hyper-religious. Where this term came from, when it started being introduced in courtrooms, I have no idea. But if you're a disabled person, you know there's a predatory industry out there that has no problem kidnapping you Hmm. because they get paid a lot of money to do it. That's right. Yeah. So that makes sense. Now I see what you mean. So, um, that was pretty boring. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Being lighthearted here. So that's that's a whole other story. I'm going to publish TLP Part 4 where I'm going to talk specifically. I'm going to be publishing my medical records and some of the court transcripts and all the things so people can be aware of the kind of predation that's going on, especially towards Christians in America today. So you've seen the pictures. My little spaceman friend, I call him. Yeah, I, this is. Listen to this, Andy. This is the one when when I spoke with Mike, uh-huh. he came by the shop. He brought us an air conditioner, which we used, by the way. And everybody is so thankful because they're nice and cool in the hot summer. And uh, he shows me this picture, and I'm like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, I want to talk about this." And I'm like, "What?" And so here we go. Get ready. So okay, yeah, buckle up. <laughs> so I've, I've had all this happen. I've been hauled into a courtroom, ridiculed, made fun of, stripped of my rights, forcibly drugged. They almost killed me by doing that. I was held 21 days, got out. Now everybody's piling on. You're crazy. You got to renounce this. You can't talk like this. You can't say this anymore. And um, so now we're into September and I got that, here comes that telepathic message again. So I said, okay, I'm going. In this case, it was come around unarmed. I never go into the woods unarmed, but this time I did. There was a specific route I was supposed to take, cut through the creek, and get home. That's about a 25-minute walk, tops. Lisa and I have done that. And so I go, and I go down, I get into the creek, I'm walking, I just take the two pictures, and I wasn't thinking anything of it. I just moved on. It took, for some reason, about an hour and a half to get through that walk. I don't know where the rest of the time went, but it did. But... um. That those pictures were, in many respects, you know, kind of America's. This was before the Navy videos came out. This was before anybody could talk about interdimensional things seriously. Yeah, you're dealing with the stigma, you know, of the of the the psych community. And yeah, the Disclosure Project hadn't come out yet, and right. yeah, this it's it's very prevalent right now in the last couple of <laughs> yeah. years, especially. So now it's, it's it's come out more, but at the time it wasn't, and that was. In many respects, you know, America's time a pop opportunity to apologize and start working rationally about what this stuff is because it's, it's not um, it's not non scientific, it's not belief, and that's why I say Christianity is a practice, not a belief, because mm-hmm. it is an interactive practice that I use. For me, it's an interactive practice. Mm-hmm. I don't look at it as a belief. I don't have a maybe aspect to my practice. Right. So. I've been holding on to that. Those pictures did prevent a second kidnapping. So, um, and then we kind of, my doctors and I had this uneasy truce where they didn't talk to me and I didn't talk to them. Mm. And that's kind of the way it was. We had to park it. I had to park it or I'm going to risk getting kidnapped again, which is one of the reasons I'm down here in North Carolina now and not no longer living in Michigan. So, you know, I, I, it was a telepathic event. As I told the doctor, contact had magnitude and direction. It's a vector, just like 
the original contact experience said to me when I'm standing in the presence of the fireball is the spirit world is a vector look for me behind the cross. Mm. So it's that the magnitude gets over those emotions that are those blocking emotions described in Isaiah 65 if you allow it to do that. So to me, these alien abductions and things like that are really more voluntary responses to telepathic events. The body may go into freakout mode because of the cognitive dissonance that's been programmed in, into everybody over this whole thing. But in reality, you know, the person's calm and interactive, and they're talking over the telepathic realms, realm, so they'll, you know, can interact with them that way. For me, there wasn't a, a freak-out aspect to it. I was just happy. I had one more piece of evidence. And so, post The evidence being the picture? The evidence being the picture. That you showed me. Yep. Yeah. The healing, you know, that was evidence too, but yeah. that wasn't being used as evidence to give me my rights back or to get people off my back or to get someone who'd want to talk about it rationally, like a, a, you know, a rational professional who wanted to have a decent conversation without going hysterical on the whole thing. I was open to doing that. I was open to doing that while I was in Michigan. But what I was not open to was having some bigot go, hey, schizo, take your meds. You know right. what I mean? Sure. So, so post-baptism, I've spent eight years now practicing what I learned, um, you know, reconciling lessons of suffering to New Testament frameworks. And now the primary goal of the lupusproject.org is to explain and defend this natural practice of Christianity, not a belief, the, the practice that emerged for me by applying lessons learned while enduring long-term indefinite suffering. Mm -hmm. And what I came to understand is that the New Testament teaches simple but highly effective practices that parallel the path of suffering, but and they're going to emerge in a God equals yes, spiritual warfare equals yes context. And the experiences themselves have the effect of shifting the Holy Spirit into the now time awareness that a person learns to develop by as they dispose entirely of the God equals maybe mindset. So it's an immersive practice. It's something put on and it's not something that's put on and off. You mm -hmm. can't put on and off. You you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, when my eyes open in the morning, I start practicing, mm -hmm. you know, and I do it all day until I go to sleep. <clears throat> so what it really is, is just preparing to be able to enter into the Holy Spirit, use it, transmit it, think with it, and defend it. And my standard during this whole time is if I was finished with that process, I'd be totally healed, including my hands, mm -hmm. which obviously I'm not yet. So, <clears throat> I call it a ghost dance because it factually describes a process of a living prayer. It factually describes a two-way interactor interaction between the creator and the created that breathes new life into the spiritually dead. So if a person does not have an environment where they can use, factually describe, and appropriately attribute the existence and origin of the Holy Spirit, it begins to fade. And that was what was happening to me in Michigan, which has been reversed by coming down here, because people here in North Carolina, at least, you can talk about this without you can have rational conversations about these topics here. <laughs> that kind of blows me away. I feel like it would be easier up north than it would be down here. Yeah, well, but, you know, <laughs> it wasn't. So well, that's that's good to know. So, um, really, retrospectively, 
What I'd done by moving to White Cloud was shift my lifestyle from one where my broken body was barely kept alive to one where my broken body was part of a broken ecosystem and all my life energy was directed at improving both at the same time. Now, with the blindness growing in my left and my left eye, I'm blind in my center of vision now, and I've got tons of spots in my right eye. I left the farm in Michigan, came down here, as they've said, to have uh, been with Lisa now. We're approaching three years. So, um, everything's been working very well down here as far as being able to talk about this, because I don't believe that we as Christians are going to make any progress if we can't talk openly and honestly about these types of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you an amen on that. That is what we do here. That's exactly what we do. Awesome. So, <clears throat> through suffering, I learned, if, you know, okay, I covered that. And, um, you know, there, there's a pivot point around no mercy. Um, and what I did was shift the no mercy of my body attacking me to now there's no mercy that's applied to deception. So, for me, that if there was any thought that said I could not overcome my obstacles, then that's deception, and I'm not going to let it get in my way. And so, I keep taking the Spirit, I keep pushing it forward, and keep trying to overcome all these things and improve my life, and hopefully some other people's lives as well. So, for whatever it is, whatever it does, there was some kind of quantum connection there that was just left an indelible mark. There's no way I'll ever deny it, backtrack, do anything different than what I've said. And it's one of the reasons why I'm speaking here today is because it's time for me to start speaking up and speaking louder and bolder about this topic, topic of suffering, and how people who, you know, can learn from that. Sure. Are you happy that you went through this, Michael? Um, it was necessary. It was necessary to go through it. And from the times that we're going into now, uh, I think when I, I'm very happy I went through it. Okay. So you can take all the suffering, the career, I lost everything twice. I own absolutely nothing. I have a really old car. That's it. There's no prosperity angle to this whole thing. This is there's, grind you down. There's no prosperity angle to lupus. No. Yeah, yeah. Lupus, how I made my million. Yeah. <laughs> the new book. Yeah. That's, that's not it. But it, it, the experience caught me completely by surprise. I had never heard about this anywhere. Um, I had learned about those kind of Salvation Army attitudes for the first time in late 2012, 2013, during this ultimate winter I went through in White Cloud. So, um, it set me up for a whole different attitude. It was, um, you know, a whole different experience with what, what the Christian practice really is and what it does. Hmm. And that I had learned, spent seven years fighting learned helplessness in the context of no mercy. I knew how to do it. It's easy. It's a lot easier than you might think. Really? Yep. Well, I'm really curious now, um, as we get close to the end here, you you've you mentioned the lupus project and you i think you said the fourth you have mm-hmm. a fourth volume that you are working or have already released right. it's i'm working on it okay now the first one is it released to the public yes so the lupus project.org that's it okay and that's what you wrote top on 415 was right minutes about no one say minutes probably 4 or 5 hours prior to the baptism event taking place mm, okay and 
within the just out of curiosity within this lupus project are there scriptures and things interwoven through this that you are teaching or are you just there are in part 3 i go into how christian practice can if you apply it rigidly you know obviously for me i'm fighting suffering on 24 hours a day 7 days a week so right. i employ these tactics 24 hours a day 7 days a week and what that has the effect of doing is shifting the death experience into the now time. Mm. There's some older paintings that depict these light beams heading through solid objects and hitting yeah. people on the side of the head, tying up to UFOs. That whole ass that that came alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So without any shadow of a doubt in your mind, this experience was real and you, it was necessary. And now it's time to talk about it. Right. Yeah. I'm glad I met you. That's where that's I am. fun. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Um, wow. Andy, you got any questions for him? That is that is a hell of a story. If you think about 24 hours, seven days a week suffering, Ugh. I've never had that. I, had, I was in Boston one time, and uh, I had these uh, – I've always had sinus problems, and I don't know that this what the, what this was, but – but if I was I was in Boston. I was having these like cluster headaches, uh, like sort of like migraines, I guess. Uh, and you know they had me on a bunch of different antibiotics. Before they finally went away, it was what Cipro, finally, whatever it was. Anyway, these headaches were so bad. I would just kind of like curl up where I was and lay down. And I dealt with that for. I don't know. It might have been two weeks. It might have been two weeks. And inside of two weeks, I was at life. Just not worth this. Yeah. You know, and, and that was a month. I mean, I, I don't want to play it down. I was in incredible pain that required me to not move. That's right. just it. There was nothing. You couldn't do anything. It was just a crushing headache. Yeah. And yeah, it was only a couple weeks of this before it was eliminated. And it was like, I was like, man, I don't know how long this going to be worth it for. Yeah. It doesn't take long if it's enough. No, it does. And when I, while you were talking, Michael, I was, I was thinking about some of the New Testament scriptures because we're, you know, at the core of who we are, we're a Bible study group, you know, but testimonies have sort of broadened our horizons a little bit. We've been hearing some really interesting things in here. And um, so I would never, what I always do is I listen and then I think, like, holy scriptures would kind of come to my mind when I think of it. Like, oh, you know, he who suffers a body is done with sin. That's one of them. You know, I'm no kidding. Yeah. That's not a joke. Um, and then what TLP is describing is the turning effect that took place, that turn to God mm-hmm. message that you see all through the Bible. That's very literal because you do turn your attention to this um, telepathic, you know, whatever you want to call it, that overcomes all the effects of that suffering. Mm-hmm. And each and every time, no matter how bad it was, I could turn to that and rest in it. Yeah. I think one of the things that you've said not that I disagree with you, but you, you talk about it's not a belief, it's a practice. And I think in your life, 100%, it has to be a practice because you are in suffering constantly. If right. you're not practicing, then you're not getting results. Right. So belief isn't enough, really. Right. You know, Belief, I guess that's what I wanted to clarify to my audience, is that belief is required— you believe in Jesus, so of you course. see. So you've got that covered. The belief in Jesus is covered. But once you get beyond that, what we call discipleship or putting things into practice, is is exactly what he's trying to describe. We don't have to look at it twenty four hours a day. Although the Bible does say to take every thought captive. Yeah. Well, when are we not thinking? <laughs> I mean, right. Uh, speak for yourself. <laughs> 
for those that haven't used a lot of drugs, you know. Right. Just kidding. <laughs> for, for me, you know, it, it what it does, it pushes me down into one person. I could only be one person. Mm-hmm. So my words and my prayers are the same thing. I look at it that way. Yeah. So as you're squishing this whole thing together, smashing down into one person, it starts ejecting all the deception, all the all the um, learned helplessness, all the victim mentalities that you know society expects people to have and carry with them. This gets rid of every bit of it. Mm. Yeah, that's really something. I'm going to read this. See so when I'm you... going to read it. Well, thank you. So, guys, if you want to learn more about uh, Michael Hessler's the Lupus Project. You can go to thelupusproject.org, and the first three are available. Is that what you said? Yes. So the first three are available. The fourth will become available after the fact. Um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to put a link on our website to your site, just so that one of our listeners come across the web page. That would be great. They can click and get straight to it. Thank you. And then you guys, if anybody has any messages you just want to give Michael, uh, you know, you can either do it through us. Um, do you have like a, a contact in your? You website, know, I, on your website? I haven't because, you know, I was hassled by the courts and the doctors sure, and the sure. medical professionals so much. And then you have all these people that want to, you know, try and knock you off your program rather than try and help you. Yeah. I pretty much ignore all the comments. Um, so, yeah, if you have a question, I'll be glad to answer it through you guys. Yeah. Okay. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but there's no donations. There's no copyright. There's nothing there. So, mm-hmm. if you want to use it, use it. It's It's free. Isn't that nice? That's the way Berean is too, right? They, yeah, absolutely. These things that these people well, believe great. in and they know, yeah, they when, give it. They don't, you don't. When don't, somebody really believes in something's importance like that, generally, yeah, that's when it happens. The funniest thing that I'm going to take away from today is that we always make fun of prosperity preachers. And he said that this was not a prosperity <laughs> story, yeah, you know. Not at all. <laughs> it's not true. Not at all. It's so true. I, anyway, Michael, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, Andy, thanks for being here. You guys don't know that Lisa's in the studio with us. You've probably heard her laugh through our mics, but she's been here. So thanks for you being here too. It's a lot of fun. All right, guys. Well, we will talk to you next time on the Burrows of Berea. Peace. Hey, guys. This is Rick from the Burrows of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the Burrows of Berea, you'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys. This uh, this Fender Champ amp, like I used to have one just like it. Like yeah, it's identical. like a, what is it, a late 60s, mm. early 70s, it I think? Looks, looks like it, yeah. I have one a lot, very similar. Yeah. Is it missing? No, no, no. <laughs> no, I was wondering if I sold it to you a long time ago. No, I bought it from uh, when I worked at that pawn shop. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a good, is excuse that, me. Is that where I pawned it? <laughs> Maybe. Probably, because you remember I used to frequent that place. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah. Well, you worked at two different ones. Oh, yeah, you're talking about the one I worked at. A million, a million years, years ago. ago, yeah. No, this is the other one. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway.